I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. The great abolitionist and orator Frederick Douglass wrote in 1863, Once a black man could get upon his person the brass letters U.S., an eagle on his button, a musket on his shoulder, and bullets in his pocket— There is no power on earth that can deny he has earned the right of citizen of the United States. The men of North Carolina's African Brigade might have found that a bit optimistic. Even as they fought valiantly to preserve the Union, they encountered vicious racism and pervasive doubt as to their capability and commitment. David Wright Falladay tells the story of this brigade in a new novel— the slaves turned soldiers, the white men who led the brigade, and the battles they fought in Confederate territory. Mr. Falladay is a professor of English at the University of Illinois. He's the author of Black Cloud Rising, and we find him this morning in New York City. David, welcome. It's a pleasure. I have been really eager to talk about the history and the making of this novel, so it's really good to have you this morning. Thank you. It's really good to be with you. And Thanks so much for taking an interest in my book. So let's refresh our memory of history in in these years of the Civil War. In the summer of 1862, President Lincoln signs two pieces of legislation that open the ranks of the U.S. Army to men of African descent. Will you give me more context about how that was greeted throughout the United States, and what happened as they formed these brigades? You know, the history of American slavery is is on some level the history about, or the history of citizenship on some level. It's about race, certainly, and it's about notions of identity. And given that blacks were viewed as lesser, they were viewed as not deserving citizenship, as not, you know, Mm -hmm. worth it. Would black men fight, you know, if they were armed? From the Southern point of view, this is a huge problem because armed slaves from their vantage point, it's slave rebellion. From the Northern vantage point, though, there was a lot of resistance on the basic question of, of, of equality. You know, again, are blacks equal to, to, to whites? Would black men stand in line and, and be brave and have honor and do the things that soldiers are supposed to do? But as the fighting got going, uh, a few Northern commanders immediately recognized that black soldiers on the one hand just this need for troops, but also the black men, uh, the, the slaves who were there were buttressing the Southern army despite themselves. It wasn't like they were joining the Southern army, but they were slaves and they were a source of, of labor for Confederate officers and whatever. So what was recognized, what was understood was that if you could take those black men in particular, if you could take those black men and get their service for the Union Army, not necessarily as soldiers, but get their service for the Union Army, on the one hand, you're adding to your own ranks, but you're simultaneously subtracting from the ranks of the enemy. Then this abolitionist element came in and said, we can also arm these men. And if we arm these men, that might not just have a, a, uh, be a force multiplier, but it might also strike at the morale of the South. That's exactly what I wanted to follow up on. It is highly controversial. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because the Union needs troops in their in their battles against the Confederate Army. But it is highly controversial when the U.S. Army gives weapons to black recruits. Do I, do I understand this right, that this doesn't happen 
immediately, but but necessity ends up requiring that they will arm these slaves turned soldiers to fight. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it doesn't have. I mean, freedom doesn't happen immediately. Emancipation doesn't happen immediately. I mean, everything is contested in this moment. Abraham Lincoln is going back and forth about whether he should emancipate the slaves. So the notion of, in fact, uh, enlisting them and arming them is much more controversial. But in the South, one of the first northern invasions is right there along that part of the eastern seaboard into sort of Tidewater, Virginia and in in coastal North Carolina. And so their northern uh, military fortifications are established and slaves immediately begin pouring in. So the northern army is beginning to use this slave service, even as it's controversial. Some of the soldiers on the ground understand immediately the impact. So despite the controversy, they're thinking, this is for the better benefit. And then somebody like Edward Augustus Wilde, who is the commanding general in, in the novel and who is an actual figure, he was an abolitionist through and through. So for him, it's bigger than that. General Wilde, uh, I fictionalize him here, but the real General Wilde was one of the men who helped organize the, the unit that is featured in the movie Glory, right? He mm-hmm. understands mm-hmm. immediately the power of a black soldier in the fight for freedom, because for him, it's a fight for freedom. It's a fight about slavery, even if the larger conversation is about disunion and loyalty, et cetera, et cetera. We should say that there is a question, obviously, of equality the whole way through, and you've alluded to this, even in including pay. I mean, the I think the soldiers in your novel and some of the other history that I've read about this learn that they are not being paid equally. And Lincoln doesn't and this is in some of the reading that I've done in Frederick Douglass as well, Lincoln does not immediately leap to say, well, that's unfair and we're going to rectify that. He kind of lets the situation go on. Just one of the of a number of inequities uh, for these soldiers of color that are serving? Absolutely. I mean, there's the issue of pay. There's the issue of how they're regarded. Even as they're raising these these black troops, Slaves who fled across and were sort of taken into Union lines were called contrabands of war. So they were referred mm-hmm. to as contrabands. They're contrabands before they're uh, enlisted or recruited, uh, is the word that they would use, into the army. They're still doing so much uh, labor. You know, they're not being armed. Also in part because, as you mentioned, the leadership is white. There are very, very few black officers. And the few black officers that are in the Union army are chaplains and things like that. So the leadership is white, and you have to have a leadership that is going to, A, want to join to lead black men, uh, be willing to do that, and then do it well. Because so much, I mean, 90% of all African Americans at that time are in the South. So most of these men from the North who, are, who have joined the Union Army and are fighting in this war um, have had no encounter with black people before, have had a little encounter with black people. What they think they understand of black people is probably what they learned watching minstrel shows or reading, you know, books, many of the depictions of which are, even in the best case scenario, sort of tinged with a sort of racism that sort of reinforces uh, a notion that that African Americans are inherently inferior, or if not inherently, that they're inferior because they haven't reached the same level of civilization as white Americans. So, Raising black regiments poses all these problems. You're listening to a conversation with David Wright Faladay about his new novel, Black Cloud Rising. And and now you can hear that we've set the historical setting and 
David has taken accurate history from this part of the Civil War and this part of the United States and novelized the story of this African brigade. They're operating in eastern North Carolina. They are commanded by a white commander who's this larger-than-life figure, and we'll talk about him as well. But the story, the novel, focuses on the experience of Sergeant Richard Etheridge, a true figure, also novelized in David's in David's fiction, and we'll talk about him as well. I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. David, um, you wrote a nonfiction book about the central character in Black Cloud Rising, this Sergeant Richard Etheridge. Tell us who he was, and then I'm then I'm really interested to know about the historical documentation that influenced, you know, that led to the nonfiction book, then, but then also influenced um, the portrayal in the novel. Who was he? Etheridge was this figure who, for a long time, was lost to history. We're beginning to recover the history of the station that he commanded in the early Coast Guard, but also him. The Coast Guard uh, christened a cutter after him. But up until fairly recently, he had sort of been lost to history. A hundred years ago, during the age of sail, most goods and people are traveling by waterways, in vessels that are powered by, by the wind, you know, and by tides and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so they're particularly vulnerable. They're wooden vessels overwhelmingly. So after the Civil War uh, was an institution called the Life Saving Service, the forerunner of the, of the modern Coast Guard. So the Coast Guard was formed from two different branches, the U.S. Life Saving Service that I'm about to describe, and then the Revenue Cutter Service that resembles a little bit more what we think of the Coast Guard today. During the age of sail, the life-saving service branch of it, its primary mission was safeguarding shipping. So there were 200, roughly, stations along America's uh, coasts. Mostly along the Atlantic seaboard and along the Great Lakes, there were a few on the West Coast, too. Stations would be six miles apart, five or six miles apart, and they would be staffed by a crew of seven, a keeper, what was called a keeper, and then six surfmen. What they would do is, during the day... They had a, an observation deck atop the, the station, and they would look out to sea to make sure that all was well. And then during night, they maintain a constant patrol, patrolling between the stations. You would walk three miles, encounter a surfman from the other station, exchange a, a metal chit to prove that you had done your beat, and then return to the station. All the while, you're looking out to sea, you know, to make sure that everything's going okay. Necessarily, a lot of times, things are not going okay. In the outer banks, in the early days, in the early years of the the life-saving service, so we're talking 1875, 1876, some of the stations had black surfmen, right? There were black men who had been slaves out there, black men who had grown up out there, who were super capable in the water. Also, many uh, were military veterans like Richard Etheridge. And because it was tied to politics, some of the first keepers who had sided with the North hired black men. They were always in the lowest-ranking positions. So the surfmen were ranked one to six, sort of number one being the second in command and number six, numbers five and six being the lowest men on the duty roster. The few black surfmen who were employed were in those ranks. This is before Richard Etheridge takes charge. He's one of those men. So it's 1876. Uh, He's hired at Oregon Inlet Station, which is to the north of Pea Island, again, which is in the Outer Banks. At this same time, because it is a political entity, and because it's a new service, it's sort of the entire life-saving service is rife with political corruption. And there, there are a series of maritime disasters that happen that are just dramatic. And 
you know, when you have that sort of shipwreck in 1876, 78, 80, it's like when a plane crashes today. You get this national media attention. There's a huge loss of life. And a, a series of these happened off the Outer Banks. Inspectors came from the north to sort of root out the trouble. They determined that a lot of it had to do with nepotism. So men who were not qualified were being hired. What they also realized was that the few black surfmen who were out there were often amongst the better surfmen, and they were increasingly being hired less and less. So you have this problem of a lack of qualified lifesavers, and then you have these very qualified black lifesavers who were about to be out of a job, and Richard Etheridge was one of them. When the northern inspectors came down to sort of tour all these stations and write this report and try to reform the North Carolina district, they noted that Richard Etheridge was regarded by both black and white as amongst the best watermen on the coast, even as he was the number six surfman in his station. So this wreck happened off the P. Island station, which was the station next to where Richard Etheridge served. The keeper that night was out. He'd actually quit the station. He was out hunting at night. And so the surfmen who were left behind didn't respond quickly or appropriately. The ship was lost at sea. There was a loss of life. The inspectors from the north seized the opportunity. They didn't install a black crew. What they did is they promoted Etheridge from number six to the keeper at P. Island. Hmm. Now, suddenly, the white surfmen at P. Island aren't going to stay there. They're not going to serve under a black man. And the, ins the inspectors anticipated this. So the white surfmen quit the crew, and that allows them then to take the remaining black surfmen in the Outer Banks and collect them all together. So in this weird kind of irony, segregation becomes the thing that provides the opportunity. By segregating those black men with R Richard Etheridge in charge, then they create this all-black station. And it's the only one in the history of the life-saving service. The life-saving service continues as it becomes a Coast Guard until 1947. And Pea Island remains a black station the length of that time. So this is what Richard Etheridge does after he survives the Civil War and goes on to distinguish himself in the way that you've just described. How much did you actually, I mean, how much historical documentation is there about his service in this African brigade? Or did you, you know, is this where the novelization, the fictionalization really had to come in? This, that's where the fictionalization had to come in. I mean, there's a lot of, because it's military and there are uh, just a ton of records uh, for the Civil War, I can trace the unit. I can say the African Brigade was redesignated the 36th USCT, United States Colored Troop. I can say the 36th was here, here, and here. Um, I mm -hmm. even found some descriptions of their activities, but it's really hard to pinpoint specific soldiers therein. Even somebody like Etheridge, who's a sergeant, and he ends up rising to the ranks and becoming the, the second uh, non-commissioned officer in the entire regiment. Even so, it's really hard to pinpoint him. I'd done a ton of research. I'm not an historian by, by training, but you, you figure it out as best you can. And, and I had access just to all that history that allowed me to try to understand the context and also pinpoint specific events. Characterization, though, that's where I needed to, or that's where I felt most comfortable fictionalizing. Ah, okay. So, I mean, history tells you that Richard Etheridge was a slave. Yes. Okay. So what you've done in the novel is create this tension in the way he's been raised because he has this awareness 
that he's special among the other slaves. And it ends up being what I thought was a really interesting facet of his personality and something that he's going to have to acknowledge when it's detected by a fellow soldier. So where does the specialness that you've you've infused his character with um, come from? This perception that he's he's not like other slaves. So Richard is the son of his former master. And that that's actually where the novel starts, more than this event of him being in the Civil War and this foray, this sortie down into North Carolina, which is just rich. But for me, even as that event was interesting and rich with possibility, the thing that I could not get out about Richard Etheridge was that piece of it, was the personal piece of it. And all evidence seems to point to his master having been his father from the historical record. So I know he's a slave for sure, because we, f- we find him, I mean, he's des- described as having been a slave in his, when he retires or when he dies uh, at the end of his service in the Coast Guard in 1900, his wife filed a pension report. Uh, or pension claim, rather. Uh, And in the pension claim, there is some testimony from people who had known him in his life. So his former masters describe him there as having been a slave and then was able to find him in the uh, the census, in the slaves, uh, the the census at that time during slavery would be listed by, you know, all these white people. And then slaves were listed in in a separate slave schedule, not by name, but by birth date, by age, by, by gender. Mm -hmm. So I could pinpoint him in that way, even though his name wasn't there. But it was all these other things that that seemed to point to Richard being biracial. Well, Richard was definitely biracial, but probably being the the son of his master. So when I first started doing research, there's there's an article in the Coast Guard magazine from 1935, one of the sort of few instances where P. Island comes up in it. And they talk about the founding of this unique station. It's 1935, the Depression. At that point, you know, the station is this sort of source of pride, like Eleanor Roosevelt goes out there. Hmm. When they're talking about the origins of the station, they talk about Richard Etheridge as having been biracial, uh, part Native American and part black. And in my own sort of experience, I mean, I'm 57 years old, so I was not born anywhere near slavery, but I just remember folks in my family, oftentimes, Native Americanness was claimed as a way to not say I am half white. Um, really, huh. oftentimes not necessarily for shame within the black community, but because black-white relations were so taboo. I was born in 1964. I was born three years before Loving v. Virginia. You know, I grew up a lot of my life in the South. So my, you know, my uh, in my youth until I was three, in some places I was illegal. I mean, that's the taboo around miscegenation. What was called miscegenation. So when I saw that about Richard Etheridge, I didn't necessarily immediately mistrust it, but it raised a question. I was like, okay, is that the fact or not? And as I was doing research, a wonderful local historian down there in the Outer Banks, his name's Window. He goes, he's from the Doe family. He was for a time the director of the Outer Banks History Center. He directed me toward these sources. I mean, they're just the Native American community was just fairly wiped out at that point in the Outer Banks. There wasn't arguably enough of, of a Native American presence that he might be half Native American. So I started then looking for other cues. And in those um, pension claims, two of the people who spoke were Jesse T. Etheridge and uh, Sarah Etheridge, both who were the white children of the man who had owned Richard. 
and the language they used again it just it it struck differently like uh sarah etheridge talked about richard having been raised in the household i don't think she used the word like one of the family but something that really mm-hmm. seemed to say that same thing other things stood out john b etheridge who was richard's owner um, had nine slaves. And in the Outer Banks, that was a pretty good number. I mean, the Outer Banks wasn't big plantation slavery. It's, it was, you know, a barter economy, fairly rustic, fairly poor. So a landowner or a slave owner wasn't necessarily a landowner, but a slave owner in the Outer Banks at that time, if you had 10 or 12 slaves, that was a, a pretty good number. John B. Etheridge had nine. As far as I could tell from my research, Richard was the only one he taught to read and write. Huh. So he's got these slaves but he only teaches Richard to read and write. Whether Richard was his son or not, he distinguished Richard. He, t- he treated him differently. And then what that means, as Richard becomes part of this African brigade, and most of the members of the brigade have not been favored by their masters, right? They're slaves. Right. He wrestles with, he has to come to terms with, and then as I said, this is, this is identified by a fellow soldier, this idea that he is special among slaves. And, you know, what does that mean to the way that he sees himself and then he sees what, the, what his brethren have, have endured, right? Richard, I mean, how, yeah. would you, how would you put it? Yeah, go ahead. Richard, again, as I imagine him, what, once I could sort of... Uh, once in my mind, uh, again, in Fire on the Beach, I can't say definitively, but this is something I want to explore is the, the fact of his paternity, of his biracialness and how that impacts upon him. Because there are lots of, you know, great watermen, uh, good leaders. Fields Midget, who is a character in the book, was a real mm-hmm. life person. Uh, he joined the Union Army with, with Richard Etheridge. He becomes a corporal. When they come back, he becomes a, a justice of the peace during the Reconstruction era, then serves in the life-saving service with Richard. Richard, though, seemed to get favors in certain ways. And so Richard is wrestling with that. The, on the one hand, coming to sort of terms that sort of feeling like he deserves to be a leader in the community, right? He sort of feels like he's raised to be a leader, right, in, within mm-hmm. the black community. Um, and he has those, that capacity. At the same time, he also recognizes that he's not getting the same favor or privilege as his white cousin, who in the in the book I, I uh, characterize as a sort of uh, a near brother, right? So as his white quote unquote brother, he doesn't have the same advantages, right? So within the black community, he feels a certain responsibility, but also a certain uh, privilege. And then compared to his white near brother, who he is at least as capable as, if not more. He's lesser. So he's wrestling with that. You're listening to a conversation with David Wright Faladay on my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. The book is called Black Cloud Rising. We're talking about a lot of the interesting Civil War era history that influenced uh, the fictionalization of this period of time and the story of this African brigade and what they were doing and the the men, many of them former slaves, who were part of this brigade and the sorties that they were involved in. Uh, David Wright Falladay, my guest this morning. 
You mentioned a few minutes ago that most of these brigades were commanded by white leaders, and the the leader, the general that commands this African brigade is Augustus Wilde, and I think you said a minute ago that's a he is a true figure from history. He's this yes. one-armed, eccentric, what I think abolitionist, right? He truly yes. does believe in the cause of abolition. But what I think is so interesting and nuanced is this. He is also a man of his time, and he can be painfully patronizing. So I was hoping you'd talk about, you know, this this man who is doing something for the cause of freedom, and yet living, as I said, he's a man of his times, and the way he treats the men in this brigade, you know, has painful echoes of of racism and inequity. So it's it's quite a complex portrait. How would you put it? Wild was, I mean, never has a person been more appropriately named. Um, <laughs> as a young man, you know, <laughs> He, go, he goes to medical school. His, he comes from a family of doctors. He actually comes from sort of, you know, Plymouth Rock family. Like, uh, I'm going to draw a blank on his uh, ancestor who, you know, was there in that part of the world in the sort of early Massachusetts colony. But he's from this entitled, this priv- well, entitled, sure, but privileged family of doctors. He becomes a doctor. But what he does as a doctor, this is in the 1850s, he goes abroad and he fights in the C- Crimean War. He's sort of this man of, of big feeling, I think, uh, is maybe a way to describe him. Uh, one of those big feelings is his feelings about abolition. But abolition is, abolitionism was complicated. Um, it's one thing to sort of go, uh, you know, slavery is a national sin. It's a moral sin. It's the downfall of our nation. We need to get rid of slavery. That's not necessarily saying the same thing as black people are equal. We want to get rid of slavery because black people are equal. We need to get rid of slavery because slavery is a, is a, is a sin. It's a problem. So they're against the institution. They're not necessarily for the slave. I'm not saying that's wild. I think wild actually had strong feeling for the black men that, you know, the black people who were enslaved. But as you really rightly said, he's, as I imagine him, certainly he was a, a man of his times. And so on the one hand, these are soldiers, and so you have to treat them in a certain way. Soldier, you know, soldiering is about hierarchy, it's about order, it's about discipline. That probably doesn't seem that dissimilar to what slaves experienced during slavery. And at that time, punishment was, martial punishment was severe, floggings and things like that. So being somebody who um, is a committed abolitionist, is committed to black soldiers, not just in secondary roles, but fighting, he's also maybe a little bit colored by his misapprehension or his misunderstanding of what it means to be a black person in the United States. And so I wanted to portray that through him, but also through Colonel Draper, who was a real life figure who struck me as different from Wilde in that way. Right, right. I mean, it makes Wilde very... I'd say credible and human, that as you said, just because you believed slavery was a was an abomination and, and on nature did not mean that you were fully enlightened. And 
and you kind of you create that tension within his character, which I think makes him uh, believable for the era, and also leads to. And I'm going to have you read an excerpt here, but leads to some of these really painfully patronizing ways that he treats his troops. Mm. Maybe you could set up the the excerpt a little bit here, David. Um, it's this encounter that Richard Etheridge is part of as they're going into some of these homesteads where rebels, Confederates, uh, are still kind of fend- thinking that they can fend off the arrival of the Union law. And, and, and tell us what else. I mean, what are some of these rebels trying to do as these brigades come in? So for them, there it's a thin line. For these white landowners in northeastern North Carolina, some immediately side with secession. Others side with union. There's not a lot of active fighting nearby. They're trying as best they can to sort of just maintain the status quo to keep life as it is. That might entail, I remember reading um, a book where they it was discussing how they were trying to imagine maintaining the status quo. Maybe we'll start to pay them a little bit or whatever, but they basically want the status quo. And in the short term, as this regiment of black soldiers arrives and takes over, occupies the city, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, there's suddenly this military force that's about to impose things mm. upon them, and primarily with black soldiers. So General Wilde in this instance, I didn't mention this a second ago, but Wilde is also this larger-than-life figure because before raising this, these troops, he's been wounded. He commanded a white regiment from Massachusetts, and he's first wounded in one arm, and it's, you know, he barely can use it. And then he returns to, to his unit and loses his other arm. So he's this sort of one-armed general who's just this, again, big figure. They're occupying Elizabeth City. They have occupied, uh, the, the unit has occupied one of the mansions of a disloyal slave owner. So somebody who fled and who wanted to keep his slaves and is no longer there. Wilde invites the quote-unquote loyal citizens of the upper crust of Elizabeth City to the house. Richard Etheridge is serving a little bit of uh, a capacity as an aide-de-camp to the officers of the unit. He's run an errand, and he returns as this meal between General Wilde, his second-in-command, Colonel Draper, this New York Times newspaper man named Tewksbury, who was an actual figure, and then these Elizabeth City Unionist slaveholders are sitting around, even if that sounds contradictory. So they're for the Union, but they still own slaves. Okay. Um, Perfect. Good setup. Thank you. Yeah. Richard Etheridge walks in the room. General Weil greeted my return with overmuch enthusiasm. I approached with a mite of caution. It's Etheridge, sir. Yes? Wilde continued, brimming with amusement. Your timing is fortuitous. Mr. Creasy here questions the Negro capacity for instruction and military service. He gestured toward a doughy man in an everyday brown sack coat and tie where the others in the group wore more formal tales. Creasy contends that you follow blindly and do not even properly know the target of our mission. Sir, said I to the general, for I knew not what he was driving at nor what he expected of me. But I then remembered this man Creasy. He was the one whose side-by-side mansions on South Road Street had been taken over by Company B, the man with the mammy who refused emancipation. Creasy in no way found the subject matter amusing. He said to Wilde, 
I admit my judgment to be tainted by the indignity of seeing your Negroes in the streets of my home, of my place of birth, in uniform and armed. I will admit this. Still, it doesn't change the simple facts. The Negro will always be true to his instinct as a faithful servant. He blindly follows. But do not confuse it, sir, for other than what it is. This does not a soldier make. Given his cross tone, I didn't mistake Creasy's informal duds for an oversight. Wilde jumped in. Blind following does, in fact, a good soldier make. He wore a foxly grin. Still, you underestimate the capacity of these men. He turned toward me. Etheridge, tell us. Who is it we're down here to ferret out? The partisan rangers, sir. And they are? The answer was obvious. Too plain. I didn't know what he wanted. Land pirates? He waited for more. They call themselves Home Guard, I continued, piling it on for the general's benefit. But we know them for criminal murderers, unmustered and ununiformed villains who have no honor. Wilde smiled archly. Tewksbury and the others, too. But not Creasy. His cheeks beat up and rage stormed his eyes. They are gorillas, yes, said Wilde. Now, spell it for us. Sir? Spell the name of our enemy. I wasn't sure which man I most wanted to shoot right then. My commanding general, or the self-professed loyal citizen with blood flaming his cheeks. Maybe Tewksbury, for having raised the matter and found it the basis of a joke. <laughs> David Wright Folliday, reading an excerpt from his new novel, Black Cloud Rising. There's so much going on in that excerpt, David. We've talked a little bit about just the, the constant slights, right? In this moment when it seems like these former slaves can, what, lay, they, lay their blood and their loyalty on the line. And yet day to day, hour to hour, they have to endure these slights. What else is, is happening in that scene? Richard is beginning to have a certain awareness about Wilde and the things that we, we, we spoke about, about whether Wilde in fact sees him. Wilde is for him. Wilde wants him to be free. Further than that, Wilde wants him to be a soldier and armed and to fight for his freedom. But does Wilde see him truly? Does he see, he argues that he's a man, but does he see him as a man equally? And is he so... Um, I'm not sure what the right adjective would be, but so uh, arrogant, maybe, in his vision of things and how he wants things done, that he's willing to risk or sacrifice Richard's dignity. In that same scene, Colonel Draper, for me, Colonel Draper is a super important character. He's a, the, yeah. the second in command, a white officer, because he has this, Draper has this arc, or at least I intend for him to have this arc, where he starts off, there's a scene earlier where Richard overhears Draper talking to Tewksbury, the newspaper man, and describe, Tewksbury has asked him about leading black soldiers, if it's different from leading white soldiers. And Etheridge overhears Draper telling Tewksbury, it's like training a dog, right? You reward them when they behave well, and you cuff them on the nose when they behave poorly. This strikes Richard, right? Draper, though, over the course of their encounter, they're only a few years apart, even though they're very different in rank and in background and whatever, 
they start to grow closer and he Richard understands that Draper begins to see him whereas Wilde never quite does and so I wanted to draw that distinction you know the I find for me as a, as, a, as, a, as a writer and just as a human being in the world, life is complicated. Nothing is really ever black and white, is it? It's always gray. And so I wanted to try to get at the gray. And I think it's really instructive because for people who have not read, I guess, more deeply about Lincoln's evolution in his views on slavery... Mm-hmm. You know, this scene is instructive for that, too, understanding where Lincoln, the great emancipator, began and where he ended up. I mean, Abraham Lincoln, uh, for nearly a decade, both before he was president and during, believed that when the slaves were freed, they ought to be sent out of the United States into colonies mm-hmm. in Africa or South, or South Africa. And that was something that obviously horrified some abolitionists, not all. But I think that also gives us this nuance of even as Lincoln is coming around, he is also reflecting the views and the indignities that we seen in the that we see in this small scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean Lincoln says if I could uh preserve I'm paraphrasing, but if I could pres- preserve the 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 union and you know, with slavery, I would do it. If I could preserve the union and get rid of slavery, I would do it. The thing he wanted was to preserve the union. It's not that he didn't have an opinion about slavery, but that wasn't his primary concern. And very, very rightly, you, you, you cite like his initial imaginings about what to do with slaves once slavery is abolished is for them to be, you know, got rid of, right? Send them back to Africa. Mm, because right. that view of African-Americans as fully equal and fully capable is just not commonly shared, again, even within the abolitionist community. So that the notion of, of, of back to Africa um, starts really in the abolitionist community. There end up being a, a, a few, um, um, I'm thinking of David Turner from the 1820s and 30s, um, who begin having this notion of returning to Africa. And within the black community, there's some talk of it, but that's much more rare than not. The sort of back to Africa movement, as we probably imagine it today, starts more fully with Marcus Garvey in the 1920s and then really sort of, you know, grows from there. At that moment, these men in this unit aren't fighting, aren't fighting so that they can return to Africa. They see themselves as Americans. They're fighting to be seen as Americans, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I wanted to to, to try to to get at that. And, and why, uh, Wilde and Draper, I think that's one way of, of trying to dramatize it, you know, the, the, that sort of tension. I mean, we, we should, I think you're alluding to this as well, that there were even some abolitionists, not Frederick Douglass as mentioned here, but some who he worked with who believed that this was really the best path, that trying to live side by side with white Americans was never going to work. They were always going to be sub- subjected to the indignities and the and the inequity. And that this was a way to remove all of that from the life of people that had been brought here and then were born into, uh, into slavery. 
that they yeah. that they might be freed from that. Even I, I'm going to I'm going to pick pick nits a little bit because I would f- okay. uh, frame it slightly differently. In the way that that I, I'm hearing you articulate it, it's almost as if the abolitionists are seeing it as a way to um, protect slaves from this racism that is there, with or without slavery. But I thought I think that it's was different. true, but no. Yeah, I, I think there's some of that, but I think it's it's even slightly different from that, or maybe even fairly different from that, which is to say, one can be an abolitionist and against slavery and still not fully understand African Americans. Not, I, I said this earlier, but 90% of all black people are in the South. You, If you live in the North and you're anti-slavery, you have maybe, maybe never even seen a black person. Your understanding of black people is what you read which is, if you read any literature from that time, even sympathetic literature, oftentimes the way that black people are de- depicted are, is caricaturally, you know. Think about Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm-hmm. a hugely important book and very mm-hmm. sympathetic to the black characters. And yet, Margaret Beecher Stowe can't really fully imagine the black characters as fully human. Uncle Tom is, in the way that Creasy just described in the excerpt I read, is in, by his definition just loyal, faithful. Right, he's not this complex, willful uh, agent of his own life, and so even sympathetic people and forces, the question arises: slavery's over. Suddenly, you have all these free black people. What do you do with them if they're not equal? If they're not capable, equally capable of being fully citizens? You know, do you give them the vote, or will that lead to some sort of corruption? These sorts of questions were fully present. And so I think that a lot of white folks, again, even very sympathetic white folks, still didn't see black people fully as people like themselves. So you don't necessarily want to give that person the vote. You maybe don't want a large group of those people moving into your neighborhood, um, you know, into your city or into your village or whatever. And so repatriation with Africa seems like a viable solution, I think. Yeah, it's really important insight. The other thing that happened as I was reading your novel, I I ran across an article about how white the command level is of our current military. And I I thought, this is interesting. There's echoes from, you know, this period of the Civil War and your writing. And a lot of this, uh, a lot of this white command, black soldiers dynamic still exists today. So I looked this up. 43% mm. of the rank and file on active duty in the military are people of color, but the mm. military leadership is still startlingly white. It's astonishing how little this has changed since this period that you're writing about. What is that? Do you have, do you have some, some consideration of that? Change always, and I'm not saying this in an apologist way. I'm not apologizing for this, but I'm just saying change always takes so long, so much time. I mean, if we think about it, um, the military is only integrated in 1949, right? After the Second World War, which from our vantage point is 70 years ago. That might seem like a long time, but in the big scheme of things, not so much. And the military and government service largely had has been an opportunity for since the Civil War for black folks. The majority of black people are in the South into the 20th century. And as you're trying to es- escape, you know, Jim Crow segregation after the Reconstruction, or as you're trying to get an opportunity, government service provides an opportunity. But government service itself 
is still is historically these they are fundamentally white institutions. So the number of people of color in the military today is as high as it is, I think, is a byproduct of that. The military is still this opportunity to open up doors and vistas. There are a number of black officers in the military, but it's much more equal than it was before. But it isn't where it needs to be. Um, change just comes so slowly. David, the other thing I was curious about is, and you've made a point of saying, uh, you know, I'm an English professor. I'm not a I'm not a historian by trade, but you've done a lot of historical research. I, I guess I was curious about how you, moving from a nonfiction telling of Richard Etheridge's life into a fictionalization of his life in a larger fictional canvas. What you took from the experience, not the documentation, but really more the experience of trying to understand him through the historical documents and moved into the the creation of the story. Hmm. What that experience was like for you. I I went to school down at Carleton, uh, down in Northfield. Oh, so, you did? Uh, yeah, oh. Minnesota's dear oh. to me. I haven't lived there in forever. <laughs> but I, I say that as a way to say one of the things that I that was super valuable valuable to me about my education, my experience at Carleton, was this sort of notion of, you know, the liberal arts education, this sort of broad-based education where you learn these fundamental skills, for lack of a better word, you know, to think critically, to express oneself orally, to write well and, and, and all that. This is gonna sound a little bit like a circuitous answer. But with that as a point of departure. Even more than a professor of literature, even more than, than an English professor, I, I, I see myself as a writer. And I have a friend who, um, whose father was the librarian at Carleton when I was there, actually, who's a writer now, too. Mm. And he talks about writers as expert generalists. Carleton prepared me for that, to, to try to be an expert generalist. I'm not an expert on the, on the history. I'm not even actually an historian, even though I wrote a, a book of history. But what I wanted to try to do, uh, my mother was a, uh, she's passed, but she was a, a French Jew who survived the Holocaust, married a black man and came to the United States in the era before Loving v. Virginia. So for me, those issues of the part of Richard that is um, biracial, that's, that's trying to understand what that means, that's part of my attraction. And the history ended up being a way to explore those questions. The question in 1863 versus me and born in 1964 is different, or at least the details of the question are different, but the question is still there. I didn't actually realize this till an interview. It's kind of stupid. I feel kind of stupid saying it aloud, but I'm going to because it's so obvious. <laughs> but uh, uh, an excerpt from the, uh, from the novel was in the New Yorker, and one of the New Yorker editors did this interview, as they often do with the writers who publish stories and other things in their, in their work, and this came up. And she made the connection. She was like, so, you know, your own backstory is kind of complicated, like Richard's backstory. And it was only in that moment that I was like, oh, you know, like, you know, that V8 moment where you knock yourself on the head, you know. And so all the history, and this is true of the other things I've written. I mean, they're not always autobiographical, but there's something about experience as I experience it or life as I experience it or see it around me that I want to explore and the historical record ends up being a great tool. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I answered your question. Yeah. I got circuitous um, and, and got lost myself. I think myself. As, as well maybe as you can uh, at the moment. I mean, just, you know, an observation here. It sounds like there is a memoir 
in the making of your of your family. Is that true? I, I'm at the Coleman Center. I'm working on a novel that is I have this complicated paternity, but that's fundamentally that. Although I'm not a, a piece of it, my mother and my biological father Falade and the man who I thought was my father, Wright, are these central figures. And I try to situate it. I'm situating it in the years after the Second World War when their lives overlap. So you have this Holocaust survivor. There are all these black GIs in Paris. And then you have this African from the colonies who's there, you know, as a colonial subject. And my mother being um, sort of outraged is the, I'm thinking of the word in French, but being just sort of outraged, old enough to understand what she has experienced, but still fairly young. She was born in 31. So at the end of the war, you know, she's a, a teenager she sort of rejects Frenchness. And a part of her also has a conflicted relationship to Jewishness. And so she embraces the other, quote unquote, you know, at first then the African anti-colonial movement. And then after that sort of comes undone, then sort of, you know, black Americans who are there. So a a little bit of a long-winded answer, but yeah, I'm trying to write about it in that way. And it has worked its way towards memoir a little bit because in trying to access these characters I ended up writing an essay that was more memoir too well good because it sounds like another opportunity for a conversation when you get it done and I look forward to it (laughs) David thank you so much thank you thank you David Wright Faladay's new novel is called Black Cloud Rising (laughs) 